I'm going to be reading Daniel 10. This is a great chapter. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the month, first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and knees, and he said to me, O oh, Daniel, man, greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And we, when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O oh man, greatly loved, fear not, Peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince.
all our great fountain figures about. Like, see the rainbows? All right, there we go. Good. Well, if I haven't had the privilege to meet you, my name is Kendall Age. I serve as the lead pastor here. Thank you for being with us as we continue our series in the book of Daniel and actually as we finish our series in the book of Daniel this morning. Uh, we're going to consider the final vision given to Daniel. But first, when Tiff and I were first married in the first couple years of our marriage, we owned a beta fish. Do you know what a beta fish? Anybody familiar with a beta fish? Okay. This is like the easiest fish to own, right? You put it in a bowl and you're done. That's it. I guess you need to feed it every once in a while, but not all that much. doesn't need a filter. doesn't need all kinds of crazy stuff. You put it in a fish bowl. It'll sit there and look fishy <laughs> for a long time, right? All right, so at this time, we had, our oldest was like three years old, and he had a little buddy come over for a, you know, three-year-old play date, and they did what three-year-old boys do, and wrestled and shot each other, and, you know, did that kind of stuff, and the, his friend loved the idea of this fish. He loved that fish, and he thought to himself, you know what? I want to pet that fish, so he climbed up on the back of the couch and reached his hand down in the fish bowl. And just pet that fish, and pet it, and pet it, and pet it. And then gently left it on the couch where we found it. We had a little ceremony. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of this mini tragedy, but kind of funny at the same time. So we're just like, yep, that's what little boys do. But we learned that you cannot unpet a fish. There's a kind of brokenness that's too deep to be fixed. And that's what this book is about. And that's what the end of Daniel chapter 10 through 12 is about. It's a, that fish is a small example of a reality that we are all way too familiar with. We live in a world that's broken, and the brokenness, we spend most of our life trying to overcome the brokenness, trying to fix things, make things the way they ought to be. And yet there's so much of life that is beyond repair, beyond fixing. We can fix some things, you know, you can fix a, a flat tire on your car or, or something like that, but many things in life, and often the most important things in life are simply beyond fixing. I mean, I think of just in this room, I think of Christians who are struggling to be holy and find that yet sin clings so closely. And there's just this, ah, oh, am I ever going to be more like Jesus? Perhaps, perhaps you faced injustice in your life and you've tried to make it right and it just can't be made right. And it's not right. And it's unjust. And it can't be fixed. 
Or maybe you faced a loss that you can't come back from and life is forever changed. Or it's just, just the stripping away of life that old age brings. Every day a little less than the day before, bodily speaking. This is a broken world and many things cannot be fixed under the sun. This morning we're going to look at the final vision that comes to Daniel and it acknowledges the brokenness of the world. It goes through the brokenness of the world, the unfixable brokenness. But in the middle of it, God offers hope anyway. Hope for an unfixable world. Now that's amazing. Hope for something that's beyond repair and beyond refurbishment. It is the hope of re-creation. The hope of renewal. The hope of resurrection. So, we're going to get there, but it's a big passage. So follow along with me, if you will. We just finished Daniel 10. Let me give you the quick summary of Daniel 10. Daniel's praying for his people. He's in sackcloth and ashes, crying out to God on behalf of his people. And an angel arrives to, in answer to Daniel's prayer. The, the angel is powerful. He is so powerful that when he speaks, Daniel falls to the ground. And Daniel, who can see the angel, he's the only one, his companions run away in fear. The angel has to reach down and help Daniel up multiple times in one chapter. And it's not that Daniel is somehow you know, weaker than the rest of us. This is a powerful messenger from God bringing a powerful message from God. And yet, this powerful angel, one of the first things he reveals is, hey, whew, good to be here. I, I've been trying to get here for 21 days. What? Like, this is one of the most mysterious verses, just kind of jumps out of our Bibles. Wait, what stopped you? One that I can't even listen to for 21 days. And he says it's this demonic power over the kingdom of Persia. So this angel was going back and forth trying to get to Daniel for three weeks. And finally, Michael, the archangel, gets involved and frees up this one to come to Daniel. Now, many of you are hoping that we do a really long aside on spiritual warfare. We don't have time to do that, but I can say one very obvious thing. How broken is our world? So broken that the kingdoms of man are under demonic influence and demonic control. That's broken. It's a broken world. And into that world comes this angel to give Daniel the vision. And it begins in chapter 11. We're not going to read the whole of chapter 11, but I'm going to dip in and out of a few different sections to give us the feel for the chapter. I do encourage that you read the whole thing uh, in your own time. But, uh, but let's start. I'll read the first four verses and, and we can understand what's said through that. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. 
And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he's become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. All right, we can show that, that slide now. All right, here's Daniel 11. We're not going to go through all of this. I'm actually putting it up here, not even so that you can read it, but so that you can get a feel for what's happening. All right, Daniel 11 gives us the political intrigues and wars of the late Persian and then the Greek Empire. All right, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And those who've studied this look back and can see, oh yeah, these verses came to pass, and these verses came to pass, and these verses came to pass. So we actually begin above where this chart begins, back up in verses 1, 2, and 3, is the end of the Persian Empire. And so they're talking about the end. There's going to be a few more kings, and then one will arise. The, the king that arose to do this was named Xerxes. You might have heard of King Xerxes. He fought the Battle of Marathon against the Greeks, the Battle of Salamis against the Greeks. The Greeks beat him and sent him back to Persia. That's all in verse 2. Then a mighty king will arise in verse 3. That's Alexander the Great who arises and takes over the entirety of the Middle East, defeats the Persians, and then, so Alexander the, the Great, it's the Greek Empire, but it's also, he's from Macedonia, all right? So it's the Macedonian Empire. And in verse 4, that empire gets divided into four pieces, and now we spend the rest of chapter 11 talking about the intrigues between the kings of two of the four kingdoms, all right? So here's the kingdoms that were involved. So when Alexander the Great took over the whole ancient Near East, one of the kings after him set up in Syria. If you're familiar with the geography, that's just north of the Promised Land. All right? Another king set up in Egypt. That's, they, that was the Ptolemy Empire. The Syrian Empire was the Seleucid Empire. They're both kind of Greek empires, but they're offsprings of the Greek Empire. All right? So you got to the north of God's people, one king, to the south, the other, and they go back and forth for hundreds of years with Israel in between. All right? So this is bad news. Right? God's people are just going to have one army from the north to the south, the other from the south to the north, because although they're all Greek Empire descendants, they don't like each other, and they're going back and forth with wars and political intrigue. And so, wow, here's all these different kings. You can see in the, the left column all these different Ptolemy, the first, the second, the third, fourth, fifth. And by the way, look down at the bottom, Ptolemy the fifth married Cleopatra. You know, Cleopatra, right? Yeah, all right. And then on the right, you get the Seleucid uh, kings that are there. I'll give you a feel for some of the rest of Daniel chapter 11. Let's just look at verses 10 through 13. All right, you can probably find it up there. That's uh, what, Seleucus the third? Yeah, 
All right, verses 10 through 13. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. All right, so we could, we could read the entirety of the chapter, and you're going to get more of that. The king of the north versus the king of the south. And as time goes on, the king of the north refers to you know, various uh, Syrian kings, and the king of the south, various Egyptian kings. It would make a good study, but if we spent too much time here, we would miss the big picture of the vision, because this is just the beginning. So let's, let's give a summary thought to this, the beginning of this uh, vision. Not only are we in a broken world, but man keeps making it worse. And as one gets power, and then the next gets power, and then the next gets power, do you know who they use it for? Themselves. Over and over and over and over, and if I didn't say it, over again. All through history. And who's at the receiving end of this? Often it's God's people that are stuck between a rock and a hard place as this battle for power goes on and on. All right. So let's jump down now to, to verse uh, 21. In verse 21, things change. And we're introduced to, and I think we could take the chart down now, we're introduced to the final Seleucid king, the final king from Syria, who we talked about a few weeks ago was Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, this great, terrible persecutor of the Jews. And he takes up the majority of the rest of the chapter. Let's just jump down, I'll, I'll, again, reading a few verses about it. Let's read uh, verse 29 through 32. At the appointed time he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and listen, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So here is one who is suffering some political defeats and he takes it out on the Jews. And this, this is the one who is, you know, coming into the temple and demanding that sacrifices to God stop. He's burning Torahs. He's burning the scrolls. He's demanding that people not follow God, but violate the covenant and follow after him. And he kills many Jews and he persecutes the faithful. And then he, he brings an altar in and places it on top of the altar in the temple an altar to a foreign god, Zeus, and slaughters a pig in the holy place. 
the abomination that makes desolate, as it says. The world is beyond broken. All right, now the rest of the passage continues to talk about Antiochus Epiphanes, except it kind of doesn't keep talking about him. It keeps talking about him, but then at some point, you start to realize that it's not talking about him anymore. And, and the line between him and the person it is talking about is actually hard to find in the text. Let me give you a, a taste of, on the other side of that line, down in verse 36. The king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his father did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and gifts, costly gifts. So the problem with this passage, which of course is not a problem with this passage, but rather with our trying to understand, is that as it began to talk about this Antiochus Epiphanes, it fits the history. But as it continues, it begins to drift far from what we know of this guy. He was bad. He was as bad as anybody had seen. He was bad, but he's not this bad. All of a sudden, we're talking in way bigger terms. Verse 37 says, he forsakes the God of his fathers. This guy didn't. That's why he put an altar to Zeus, the God of his fathers, in the temple. And then it says he honored the God of military power above other gods. Well, he obviously loved military power, but he was worshiping the Greek gods. And then it says he exalted himself in verse 36 above every god. And this historic figure simply did not do that. So what's happening? For that, I got to back us up for a minute and give a little illustration, a little story, okay? Imagine that you are driving across the U.S. through the plains of the U.S., and you're approaching the Rocky Mountains. Have you ever done this? Okay, I've never done this. I've driven across the U.S. as far as Amarillo, and there are no mountains there. It's flatter than a pancake, all right? But if I had kept going, eventually, way out on the horizon, rising up out of the plains, you could see the mountain range rising, right? So let's, let's say that I'm going to describe a mountain out there. And I look at that mountain and I see a many-peaked mountain in the distance. And I could say, you know, it's, it's snow-capped on two of the three peaks. The two highest peaks have snow on them. The, the lower peak doesn't. And I could see there's no trees on it. I can kind of see where the trees stop. And I could give a description from a distance of what that mountain would look like. Now imagine that we, we drive there to that mountain, and I don't know how long would that take, maybe a full day or something, right, before you actually get there. And I'm going to put the mic down as I do this, all right, in a second. As we get close to the mountain, 
it becomes clear that what we saw back then was more than one mountain, like this. From a distance, we see it like this. But as we get close, we realize, oh, there's a tall mountain and a shorter mountain and some distance between them. But from a long ways off, you can't tell that distance between the mountains. Does this make sense? All right. So it is often with biblical prophecy. The prophet's perspective is of a place far off. And he describes truly, precisely what God wants him to describe. It is a true description and an accurate description, but it is not a full description of all that could be said. And so, there's actually a theological word for this. It's called prophetic foreshortening. You know, I feel like I've been foreshortened, but <laughs> prophetic foreshortening. It's like foreseeing something, and in the foreseeing, out on the distance, you shorten the distance between events, or just you don't see the distance between events. All right? So, so often the prophets will, will see out, like this happens so much in the Old Testament, they would see out to the coming of Christ, and they would kind of conflate his first and second coming. Right? And so, but then actually, once you actually get there, you go, oh wow, there's some distance between these mountains. Like a long distance. There's the first coming mountain, then the second coming mountain. And it's not that they were wrong. It's that that was the perspective God allowed them to see. And, and they spoke truly. All right, so what's happening here? I believe the same thing is happening here. And what we have described at the beginning of, of this section is the Old Testament Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes. Persecutor of God's people, exalting himself above God, turning people away from the covenant, distorting and burning truth, right? This is an Old Testament Antichrist. By the end of chapter 11, we're dealing with the New Testament Antichrist. And I'm not sure precisely when we left the description of one mountain and started describing the next. But at the beginning, you can tell it's the historic guy. And by the end, you're going, whoa, this guy is much worse. And the time period we're now in seems to be the end of days, which we'll see here in a minute in chapter, chapter 12. So, by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, God's people are in a bad place. The New Testament Antichrist is on the move. He's got his army out. It says in verse 44, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So he is pitching his tents between the sea and the holy mountain, the, the holy people of God that he is after to persecute. All right. So chapter 11 ends with a bad situation with God's people being pursued by the Antichrist. And now we can get to the heart of this passage, which is chapter 12. So follow along with me as we read this together. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such has never been 
since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Many of those who, are, who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Praise God for Daniel. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, Oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. The wicked shall act wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end. You shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. If chapter 11 left us wondering about the time period being discussed because it started in the ancient Greek empire and ends at the end of time, chapter 12 at least is clear. Chapter 12 is talking about the end of the world. This, this is the end of time. It begins where chapter 11 left off, a time of terrible persecution and suffering for God's people. And then, suddenly. Suddenly. So suddenly, we don't even have time to process it as we read. Everything changes. Everything changes. It changes completely. It changes totally. It changes eternally. We were just driving down the road of history. And then all at once, eternity. As if the road of history had suddenly plunged off a cliff. The road is over. The strife is over. The battle is over. The pain is over. And we find ourselves on eternal shores. The eternal destination. It begins in verse 1 with Michael arising. It says, Michael shall arise. He's the, the head angel. The book of Revelation uh, tells us he's the archangel. That is the, the highest angel. The, the head of the armies of heaven. Michael arises, so arise the heavenly host to come in and to rescue God's people. Sent, finally sent to rescue the people of God who have been trampled underfoot. Now, let's not put our hope in the wrong place. Our hope is not in the angels. Right? And, and it's not like the angels are waiting right now sort of 
gathering their strength, sort of some deep breathing, maybe stretching out until they're ready to go. Angels are ready to go. They're waiting on the word to go. And that word is the one we trust in. The word of our Savior who says, now. And in they fly to rescue and redeem the people of God. That day is coming. As it says, at that time, your people shall be delivered. There it is. For so long there was no hope. One thing after the other after the other, trampled down. Just no hope and darkness. Things going along as they have always gone along. Just going along and going along and going along and then there it is. Hope. Breaking into hopelessness. Light gets turned on. Deliverance is brought forth. Your people, Daniel, will be delivered. Delivered from persecution. Delivered from pain. Delivered from injustice. Delivered from the brokenness of our world. Who will be delivered? Well, your people will be delivered. But who does it say? At that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Friends, I'm here to talk about a book this morning. A book. Now, Daniel calls it the book, but we can infer from this that, that it's important to be in this book, that those who are in this book get delivered. Get delivered, and then the next verse says, to everlasting life. This is the book of eternal destinies. Revelation 13 gives us the full title of this book, where it says that those whose names were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. There's, there's the title. And it's a good title for the book. It is, first of all, the book of life. That's good news. It's not the book of judgment. It's not the book of death. It's not the book of brokenness. It's the book of life. Now, the book of life of what? It's the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. It's not the book of life of the works of good people. It's not the book of life of the law kept by the saints. It's not the book of life of deeds done by the righteous. No, this is the book of life of the Lamb. And particularly, the Lamb who was slain. There's life promised to everyone whose name is in this book. But life was earned not by those whose names are in the book. It was earned by the one whose name is on the cover. It's the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The book of life. You know, when I, when I hold this book, or any book, you've got pages inside with words on the pages, and you, you, you shut the cover, and you kind of protect the pages, and you can protect the, the words inside the, the book. Well, in, in the same way, the names written in that book are protected by the name that's on the outside of that book. They are hidden beneath that name, the name of the Lamb who was slain. That's why their names are in there. That's what keeps their names in there. That is their only hope in life and death, is that he signed the outside of that book with his blood. Salvation 
is a gift. Friend, have you received that gift from the Lord? Have you repented of your sin? Have you trusted Christ to forgive you for your sin? He came to do that. That's why he is the slain lamb. As a, as a sacrifice for sin. So that your name can be hidden inside from wrath and hidden from judgment and hidden from eternal death. Bound up safely within. If you would have life, look to the author of that book. And verse 2 shows us the importance of doing so. Chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is the day of resurrection that is foretold. All will be resurrected, but some to one place and some to another. All will be resurrected, that is, body and soul brought back together by the power of God. All people who have ever lived will come up from the dust in which they slept, reunited to their bodies. For some that is good news, and for some that is not good news at all. Because it says that they will awake to shame and everlasting contempt. It is the shame of rebellion against God, the contempt that comes from sin, the judgment of God. It is an everlasting contempt. It is an everlasting judgment. And it is borne by people not in some ethereal state as, as spirits. It is borne bodily and eternally. And if you've ever listened to your conscience, you know what you deserve as well. And so I say again, turn to Jesus, the one who was slain to protect his people from that resurrection, from that eternal judgment. He endured judgment on our behalf. And praise God, because he did, then some will awake to everlasting life. Everlasting life. All things made new. Our bodies made new. It continues, actually, in verse 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Remember, we're reading apocalyptic literature, right? You're not going to become a star. This isn't Tolkien, all right? You're not going to become a star. But in the language of apocalypse, what this talks about is that the lowest saints will reign with Christ. They will be exalted next to Christ. Glory to God. Those who, have, those who are wise, that is, those who have clung to Christ in this life, will shine like the brightness of the sky above. Those who turn many to righteousness, that is, who believe the gospel and live out the gospel and speak the gospel to others, who tell of Jesus, will shine like the stars forever and ever. This is a complete reversal of history. 
This is, this is the last becoming first and the first becoming last in, in one verse. Those who had been trodden underfoot, stuck between the king of the north and the king of the south and all of their lust for power for year upon year upon year, they will rise up and the rulers of this world will be cast down. And so here the brokenness that cannot be fixed will yet be undone and this world will be remade. Even though it is beyond fixing, it is not beyond remaking. You can't unpet a fish. But God. But God. Huh. But God can remake however He desires. And He reveals that He will remake. And He will remake things good. The God who created once will create once again. And old age will be reversed. And disease will be undone. And injustice will be made just. And justice shall triumph. And mercy shall reign. And how in the world was God going to do all this? I'm just, Daniel couldn't have had a clue as he read this. Just How would God step into history and make this all happen? We have not seen the end. But we have seen the beginning of the end. We've seen something that Daniel didn't see. We saw when God did step into history and began this good work. The work that he will finish on that day. He already started it, friends. It's already paid for. He's already begun. Anything that happens from here on out in the end times will be but the outflow from the cross. From the victory that Christ already won. One day, injustice shall be overturned. How will God overthrow injustice? Well, He did it by enduring injustice on the cross. He purchased the end of brokenness by being broken. He purchased the end of sin by becoming sin for us. He purchased the end of wrath by absorbing the wrath of God. He purchased the end of death by dying in our place, so that our names could be written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So one day the world will be remade and resurrected and renewed, and that will all be because of what Christ did on his cross. Now, the passage ends by asking the question that Christians have been asking ever since, when's that going to happen? The whole last paragraph deals with when's that going to happen? And there's these sets of numbers in there. Confusing numbers that are in there. Will it be, we see towards the end, there will be 1,290 days, but then blessed is the one who arrives at the 1,335 days. Christians, believers, for all ages have been trying to figure out exactly what this means with no clear consensus whatsoever on what this means. We would do well to find refuge in what Jesus said when asked the day and the hour. No one knows, not even the Son, but only the Father. Okay, so we can take it then that these are not meant to tell us precisely when all this will happen. It's a symbolic answer but it is an answer, and here's what it tells us. It tells us God knows. God knows the number of days. 
He has numbered the number of days. He has limited the number of days. And he will bring an end to these days of pain and persecution and suffering in his own perfect timing. So we don't know the days. We do know they're passing. The chapter ends and the book of Daniel ends with a final word of comfort in the last verse. Here it is. But go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. This was from the angel to Daniel. Go your way, Daniel. Go your way. Live your life. Don't worry about what you don't know. He had just said he was confused. The angel saying, go your way. You're not going to understand it all. But you do have what you need. Go your way. Live your life. Don't worry about what you cannot know. And go your way till the end. And you shall rest. This is, that is to say, you shall rest in the ground. Daniel, go live your life unto God. And then go die the death that he has for you under God. Go do that, Daniel. Trust your God. Go your way. Live and die. And, and, you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. There is a place reserved for Daniel on that last day. In that heavenly throne room, there's a place for Daniel. Have you ever been in a big group where they're trying to be organized about where everybody stands, maybe a choir or something? So they'll put like a little X of masking tape on the ground with your name on it, and you kind of go, oh, that's where I'm supposed to stand. <sighs> Daniel, you will stand in your place on that last day. What kind of a wonderful word is that? There is a place for him. Friend, I am here to say that this is written for Daniel and it is written for us. Did not Christ declare to us, I go to prepare a place for you. This is not just Daniel's promise because Daniel is a, you know, kind of in the Bible. This is a promise to all of God's people. And it is a good word for us. Hear this word. Go your way. Live your life under God. Die the death that he has for you. And you will stand with him in your allotted place on that day. Glory to God. John 6 verse 40. Jesus says this. This is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son. How many? Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Friend, there is a place for you as you trust in Christ. There is a place for you on that last day. Worship team, come on up. And as they do, let me encourage you to find your bulletin. It's under your coat or it fell under the pew. Find your bulletin. Find the bulletin insert. 
it asks a question. The question is, what is our only comfort in life and death? What is our only comfort in life and death? In this broken world, what comfort can there be in a world that can't be fixed? Well, we, we found it this morning. And our comfort in life and our comfort in death is in Jesus Christ. And so, we're going to stand together and we're going to read what you have in your hands. So let's stand up. What you have in your hand, by the way, is, is the answer that a catechism gives to this question of this hope in a broken world. It's a famous catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism. This is the very first question and answer. If you can't find your bulletin, we're going to be putting the answer on the board. So I'll read the question and then together we can read the answer. All right? So what is our only comfort? Do we have the, do we have the question and answer for the... All right, good. What is our only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Here is our hope. Here is our comfort. We are not our own. We belong body and soul in life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 